Hello and welcome to our London History Podcast, where we share our love of London, its people, places and history. It's designed for you to learn things about London that most Londoners don't even know. I am your host, Hazel Baker, qualified London tour guide and CEO and founder of londonguidedwalks.co.uk. Each episode is supported by show notes, transcripts, photos and further reading, all to be found on our website. Click on londonguidedwalks.co.uk, podcast, and then select the episode that you fancy. And if you enjoy what we do, then you'll love our guided walks and private tours that we offer throughout the year. So get that cup of tea, put your feet up, and let's begin. The story of the transatlantic slave trade is not one that can be told without acknowledging London's integral part in this dark chapter of history. While we explore this topic, we'll strive to maintain an educated, friendly and approachable tone, as we always do, and ensure that we remain neutral in our presentation of facts and narratives. London, with its bustling docks, financial institutions and influential individuals, became a central hub for the transatlantic slave trade during the mid-17th century to the early 19th century. The city's economy, culture and society were intrinsically linked to the trade in enslaved Africans. As we explore this complex history, we'll shine a light on the key figures who profited from the trade, as well as those who campaigned tirelessly against the institution of slavery. Throughout this episode, we'll seek to provide a comprehensive view, examining the economic interests, societal attitudes and the eventual abolitionist movement that emerged from London. Joining me in the studio is City of London tour guide Ian McDermid. He's a regular on the show and a firm favourite. So welcome back, Ian. We have missed you. Yeah, hello, Hazel. Yes, it, it's been a while and uh, it's uh, very good to be back. Um, so thank you very much. And uh, yes, uh, I'm, I'm very... I hesitate to use the word enthusiastic because of the nature of today's uh, subject, which is slavery. But it's one that I and I'm sure many, many people find uh, absolutely um, compelling. Slavery has been a part of uh, cultures for many thousands of years. But this time we're looking at the transatlantic slave trade in particular and the scale of the British involvement. And it was huge, wasn't it, Ian? Yes. Well, this is one of the things about you just putting it in context, because slavery was, sorry, pretty ubiquitous. I mean, you could find it in most parts of the world. Um, Though on that point, one of the interesting things is that actually uh, the one place where it is absent from the central Middle Ages onwards to to the beginnings of the, the period we're going to talk about is it's absent from Northwestern Europe. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is the kind of alacrity with which um, the European Atlantic powers, including Britain, uh, take up the trade. But anyway, yeah, as you were saying, it's absolutely huge. So we're talking um, in terms of the whole European involvement in it. uh, And the, the big countries we're talking about are Spain, Portugal, France, the Netherlands and Britain, though other northern European countries are also involved on a small scale. Um, And it runs roughly from the early 16th century up until around 1870. And um, 
the figures that I'm going to be using today, which I'd be very grateful if you would uh, help put in the bibliography, I'm going to be relying on figures by uh, David Richardson. So we'll, we'll put a little footnote in saying where those where, where the figures can be read. Um, but he's working very much in the tradition of um, an American called Curtin, who first uh, established the huge numbers, I think, uh, of the slave trade back in the 1960s. According to Richardson's figures, um, the, for the whole period, about 12 million are transported um, across from Africa to the Americas. And of those 12 million, about 10 million make it to the other side. And uh, that, with regard to the British, um, the British ship 3.42 million. And of those 3.42 million, about 2.96 million arrive on the other side. So it is absolutely massive. And the other striking thing about the British involvement in it is that compared to the other European powers, they are involved in this trade for a relatively short period. So they come late to the phenomenon. Uh, British slaving really gets going about 1660. And then, of course, the British are the first nation to end it. Um, they pass uh, three important pieces of leg legislation. The most important is 1807, they end the transatlantic trade. And then in 1833 and 1838, there are two pieces of legislation which abolish slavery uh, in the British Empire. And so 1660 to 1807 is a shorter period than other uh, slaving powers. But Within that period, um, the British are um, the most efficient and they ship more slaves than anybody else. Um, and a couple of points to, a couple of details to put in about the, these figures. One is that the overall mortality, when I say 3.42 million are shipped, 2.96 million arrive on the other side, that equates to about a 13% mortality rate. And the mortality rate um, declines over the period. Now, uh, probably almost goes without saying, this has got nothing to do with humanitarianism. It's just that they get a bit more efficient at shipping what they would regard as their cargoes. And in particular, they're using uh, faster ships, which cut down the, the, the time of the uh, middle passage, as it was known. Um, the other thing is that over this period as a whole, the volume of trading increases dramatically. Now, the figures are very, very volatile. One of the reasons that they are volatile is that um, the slave trade is very vulnerable to periods of war, and there's quite a lot of warfare, in particular with the French, but also with the um, Spanish. And in the earlier period, in the 1660s, the British are transporting about 6,700 a year, and that goes up to its peak in the 1760s when the British are transporting um, 42,000 uh, per annum. 42,000. I mean, that's my hometown's population. Yeah, I, it, I mean, as ever with these statistics, I mean, they're, they're so in, I think they're the most important way of uh, tackling the subject from the beginning. But it, I mean, it's, it, it's very difficult to get into your head to actually try and imagine mm -hmm. this. But absolutely, yes, absolutely vast. And 
you might remember we had uh, Michael Bunduk on episode 118 talking about Francis Barber, um, saying that uh, one change in recent historiography has been really to recognise the important presence of black people in Britain, uh, um, especially London in the 18th century. Um, It is also the case that there's been recent re-emphasis on Britain's role in, in slavery as well. Yes, and um, I think that this in part is a function of the way slavery is ended in this country. So you, you have the abolitionist movement, which leads to the ending of the trade. And once it is ended, the British become moral crusaders against slavery. And this occurs perhaps in its first instance, very early on. Um, so I was saying earlier that they don't actually get around to abolishing slavery as an institution until the 1830s. But as early as 1815 at the Congress of Vienna, Castlereagh, British Foreign Secretary, is instructed by the cabinet to put it, to insist on a provision in the treaty that the signatories uh, give a commitment to the ending of slavery. Of slavery. Now, this has probably very little practical effect at all. But It's interesting because it's probably the first instance of a kind of preachy foreign policy that we would later associate with the Americans and particularly with Woodrow Wilson after the uh, First World War, where you're putting kind of, well, humanitarian general principles that are inspired uh, by religion in part into uh, foreign policy. And I think that one effect of this is that in the British collective memory, it was the uh, abolition of slavery that was remembered rather than the um, institution itself. And one of the things that I think will, will inevitably come up in talking about this is how deeply ingrained uh, slavery was in so many aspects of uh, British life. And what specifically was the role of London in all of this? Uh, Well, London is one of the three big slaving ports. Um, So people... Voyages are dispatched from a whole range of ports on Britain, including small ports and including Glasgow. But there are three big ones that really dominate the trade, and they are London, Bristol and Liverpool. And London dominates the trade in the earlier period, so from about 1660 to about 1730. And uh, after that, Bristol has a brief period of dominance, and then it's Liverpool. And at its peak, um, in the period from 1720 to 1729, London sent out 600 slave ships, which accounted for 54% of the total slave um, voyages sent out by British shippers. Um, And then as I said, at the end of the, well, in the, in the latter period, the, the sort of dominance moves. And at the end of the, our period, um, when Liverpool is at its apogee in the 1790s, Liverpool sends out 1,011 voyages. And in that decade, London sends out 173 and Bristol 123. And in that decade, London is accounting for about, thir- thir- well, is accounting for 13% of the total of, of voyages. Um, and the reason the, gra- the, the sort of centre of gravity shifts to the, the, the western ports is partly because um, Bristol and to a greater extent Liverpool are less vulnerable to French attacks than London is. Um, but also um, wages are lower in Liverpool 
Um, the, the we'll, we'll talk about the costs of slaving. They're considerable. Paying for the, the crew is one of the big costs. And also, they're, they're obviously very well positioned for, for uh, Atlantic trade. Um, though London's importance, relative importance, declines as um, the home for the um, the voyages, its position in the overall slave trade remains very important in, in what we might describe as providing ancillary services. So most of the capital for the slave voyages comes locally. So we're talking about partnerships of merchants and in the latter period, the Liverpool uh, voyages are largely financed by uh, Liverpool merchants. But London is crucial in two aspects of the, the, the kind of financing and organisation of voyages. One, London is the centre for the bills of exchange market. So we, we, I know we've mentioned bills of exchange in, in, in other podcasts. This is the 18th and 19th century money market, the market for short-term debt. And in particular, the money market facilitates the um, short-term financing of um, transatlantic trade. Um, so um, merchants in the West Indies can issue bills of exchange and they can pay for things, um, they can borrow money short term and um, they can effect payment uh, in, in London. London is also the centre of the insurance market, which obviously is, is very important for the, the voyages. And London merchants are also major suppliers of the goods that are then transported to Africa, which are then exchanged uh, for uh, slaves. And when we're talking about um, the manufacturers going out to Africa, we're talking the, the most important ones throughout the period are textiles. And the uh, nature of the textiles exported varies over the period. So to begin with, it's um, woolen cloth mm -hmm. and um, cottons produced in India, which then involves the East India Company uh, indirectly in, in, in this commerce. Uh, and then in the later period, you're getting the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution and its cottons produced um, in Lancashire, um, which are then uh, being transported out to, to Africa. Um, after textiles, the next most important uh, class of goods is metals in general, followed by weapons. And then there's a whole range of miscellaneous goods. And within those kind of sundry items, one of the very important ones is one that you mentioned in an earlier podcast when you were doing the mudlarking on the Thames and you spoke a bit about glass beads being found in the mud and the um, export of glass beads uh, to exchange for, for slaves was quite large um, and in the earlier period these glass beads come from Venice and then it's something that the, the, the Dutch uh, take over and the Dutch produce um, a wider range of beads. They produce them in different sizes and they produce them in a greater range of, of, of colours than the um, Venetians. So it's quite interesting to think, I remember you mentioning glass beads uh, being dropped in, into the Thames mud and it's interesting to speculate that perhaps they may have come from a a, a shipment that was ultimately destined to be exchanged for, for, for people in Africa. Yes, that was episode 112, Mudlarking, Georgian Finds. 
Yes. And actually, I've, sorry, Hazel, I just remember something very important of is that the London merchants are also extremely important in handling all of the sugar that's then brought in. And uh, we cannot really underestimate the importance of sugar in the 18th century economy. By about 1800, um, sugar accounts for about 20, 25% of the value of, of total British goods. So it's sugar, but it's also the, all the other goods that they're sending out from the, the slave economies. Uh, the next and most important one is tobacco, but also things like rum uh, and indigo. And what was it about sugar that sent us Brits so crazy for it? Well, I think it's a fairly, it's not just the British. It, 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 everybody has a, a craving for um, sweetness and uh, sugar becomes enormously important in, in all of Europe. But what I think is unique to Britain is that what to me, um, sort of standing back, appears rather bizarre, that combination of tea with sugar um, and that becomes obviously absolutely enormous and um Tea consumption um, begins as an aristocratic pursuit, but it rapidly uh, descends throughout the lower rungs of society and becomes absolutely ubiquitous. And indeed, um, the sugar is probably an important part of the um, calorie intake of a lot of the, 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 the labouring poor. Um, so, I mean, it's that it's that unique British institution of drinking sweet tea that really takes off in the 18th century. So we've been talking so far about trading in slaves, but what about the plantations as well? Yeah, so to give some idea of the scale of this, when slaving is abolished as an institution in the 1830s, there are 750,000 slaves in British plantations, that is to say, in and around the Caribbean, um, who are set free by this, this legislation. Um, we need to obviously remember that in the um, 1770s and early 1780s, you have the American War of Independence. So prior to that, um, the North American colonies were British and there you've got plantations in the 18th century producing mainly tobacco. Um, so we've got to remember all of those workers in those colonies uh, that should be kind of added to the, the total when considering the, the, the scale of it. And the British involvement in the Americas um, begins really in 1609 when they take Bermuda. Shortly after that, they begin colonising the North, Amer North American seaboard, um, beginning with Virginia and Massachusetts. 1625, the British take Barbados. And then by the early 1630s, they've taken uh, a few of the Leeward Islands, such as Antigua and uh, Montserrat. And then 1655 is the big one in the Caribbean, big one in terms of its size, um, Jamaica. And what transforms all of this, the, the, the British imperial presence in the Caribbean, is the introduction of sugar. And this looks as though it's actually a product of uh, Dutch involvement. So the Dutch had successfully conquered a, a large amount of Brazil. Brazil was an, a Portuguese imperial possession. But the Portuguese are successful in driving the Dutch out. And when they, they leave, quite a few of them um, move to uh, Barbados in, in, in particular, and there they introduce 
Dutch methods of growing sugar. And also the Dutch, um, the, I, I said earlier, the British only really get into transporting slaves in the 1660s. The, the, the Dutch are the kind of big carriers in, in this earlier period. And they introduced the, the, the slaves to the, the Caribbean. And it, it, it's dramatic because um, the British had about 6,000 slaves in the 1640s in the in in the West Indies, and that increases to about eighty thousand in the 1660s. And in the earlier period, they're u- being used to grow tobacco. In the 1660s, it's sugar, and this leads um, not just to a huge expansion in the slave population, but the value um, of the estates in the West Indies um, grows exponentially. Um, and Hugh Thomas, who's one of the sort of great writers on the transatlantic slave trade has a very good phrase for this he talks about the um caribbean as becoming um the the uh, archipelago of sugar and when it becomes the archipelago of sugar it's the british and the french who are the dominant players um but it's all made possible um, by the Dutch. And when we're talking about the 18th century, and we're talking about the fate of the the, uh, slaves being transported across, around 70% of them are destined for the sugar plantations um, in in the West Indies. Um, In in this period, um, the North American colonies are concentrating on tobacco, um, and t- tobacco, the plantations uh, are, are slightly smaller than they are in the West Indies. And it's the sugar cultivation that is the really harshest part of the slave system. It's where the mortality is highest. Um, and um, in addition to producing sugar, they're also producing the byproduct of sugar is molasses and rum production is, is important. But it, it, it's obviously the sugar that's the main thing. And what about the wider economy? How did that all fit in then? Yeah, well, it's it's of um, enormous importance. So we've already talked talked about um, sh- uh, tea consumption, um, and when we're talking about tea, we shouldn't just be thinking about people consuming just the tea. It's not. I mean, that's the most important thing. But there's also all the paraphernalia that you associate with tea drinking. Um, so we're saying that it began as an aristocratic thing, and we think of those fine porcelain sets. Obviously, even poorer house, households are buying teacups, teapots, uh, and the rest of it. So, huge impact on um, ceramic industry. Um, the other big crop after sugar is tobacco. And again, that has a similar kind of trajectory because by the 18th century, uh, even poor people are smoking. And um, coming back to mudlarking, just think of all those clay pipes, but also think of all the the retailers of tobacco. Um, And the slave economies are producing other products as well. They're also producing, as I mentioned, indigo, but also rice uh, are important. And we've got to think of all of those um, exports that are going to um, Africa. Um, it's a huge part of British trade. Um, a, an awful lot of British manufacturers are destined um, for that continent. Um, in the 1940s, there was a Marxist historian, Eric Williams, who postulated that the Industrial Revolution was actually financed on the, the back of the slave trade. Um, that seems unlikely. Richardson's looking at 
this. He 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 reckons that um, the typical return on a slave trade was around eight to ten percent. And if you manufacture that by the num, sorry, if you multiply that by the number of voyage, voyages made, you, you you get a figure that's kind of insignificant in relation to the amount of um, uh, capital that would that was required uh, for investment to get the Industrial Revolution going. So that, that looks as though it wasn't the case. Um, but there is the obvious point that um, a lot of money was made out of this. So an 8 to 10% return on the slaving voyages wasn't bad. And then the income of the plantation owners um, in Jamaica in good years uh, in the 18th century, plantation owners could get a return of about 13%. And obviously, if you compound that, um, it's huge. The, 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 the money that the plantation owners made was hugely volatile. Um, and also, there's a process whereby the smaller estate owners are driven out and uh, the, they become indebted and basically they're taken over by the, the bigger um, estate owners. But nevertheless, overall, the wealth generated by these is fantastic. And the one of the phenomena you get in uh, Britain in the 18th century is that of the absentee plantation owner. These are people with... Uh, new money, huge amounts of money, and they're attempting to buy their way into the uh, British elite. London was home to the Royal Africa Company as well. Uh, what was its role? Yeah, the in the um, earlier period, um, which coincides with London's dominance, um, Britain, like other European slaving nations tries to organize the slave trade through chartered monopolies and the Royal African Company um, was the most important of the uh, British companies. But all of the European um, slaving states try to set up uh, basically what we might call state-run monopolies. Um, and this begins in 1660 when Charles II grants a thousand-year monopoly of the on the English slave trade to Africa to the company of royal adventurers trading to Africa. That company is then reconstituted in 1663. Um, that indicates they got into a bit of trouble. And nine years later, its rights were transferred to the Royal African Company, again for a thousand years. And the Royal African Company had some success um, in particularly in the 1680s, um, it, it manages to make some money. and But in 1698, its monopoly is ended by Parliament, and Parliament declares trade open to all merchants of the British Empire, provided that they pay 10% duty to the Royal Africa Company on their exports to Africa. And these duties then expire in 1712, after which the Royal Africa Company and its successor, the Company of Merchants Trading to Africa, their main role is to maintain the forts and factories um, in Africa. And to summarise all that, um, from 1698 onwards, the trade is dominated by private merchants rather than these organised uh, companies. And... Um, the reason that they are so keen to have these um, organised companies is because you've the, the British state wants to 
um, tax the slave trade, and it's felt better if you've got a monopoly, you can do that. Um, but also they're concerned um, with um, maintaining the forts and fortifications. And the idea is that if you've got a monopoly, they can uh, use their monopoly to uh, subsidise. Now, the the problem with the Royal African Company, and it's a problem that's um, suffered by all of the, the European attempts to run monopolies, is that they're saddled with costs, the cost of maintaining these forts and fortifications, and they are indebted. The other problem is that through, although they have a monopoly, there are always interlopers, and the interlopers are just so much more efficient, partly because they don't have the costs of maintaining these forts. Um, and even when the RAC has a complete monopoly, an awful lot of the trade is in the hands of interlopers. But the problems for them don't stop there, because a lot of the interlopers, i.e. the people breaking the monopoly, are actually employed by the Royal Africa Company itself. So the, the servants, as they were known as the company, would do trading on the side for their own accounts. And uh, so the, the, these companies are never um, a, a great success. And when its monopoly is ended in 1698, it's kind of really a recognition of, in a way, what has already become fact, that the, a lot of the trade has moved away from the Royal Africa Company. There are also lots of complaints from plantation owners that the these companies, including the Royal Africa Company, are not delivering um, enough slaves to them. And again, this reflects the fact that the interlopers, the private merchants, are just so much more uh, efficient at taking people across the Atlantic. Um, Royal Africa Company had its headquarters at Africa House. There's a little bit of debate about where that was. Pepys says that it was in Broad Street, but it may be that he was referring to the, the ward of Broad Street rather than the actual street. So it may well have been just sort of slightly to the, the north of the um, Bank of England. Now, we've already done episode 27 about the South Sea bubble, but what else can we um, add to that? Yeah, well, um, when we did the podcast, we we can basically sum it up by saying there are sort of three parts of the South Sea Company. One is an attempt to um, ship slaves to the Spanish Empire. Uh, the second is an attempt to refinance British government debt. And then the third aspect to it is this huge bubble uh, in the share price, which bursts in 1720. So on the um, slave trading, um, a lot of people within the British government get very excited towards the end of the War of Spanish Succession. They are going to win big concessions from the Spanish and the French. And um, the, the concessions that the British get at the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, they get Gibraltar, they get Minorca, which are both very important possessions. Um, and the thing that perhaps creates more excitement than those is they get the right to run the Asiento. And the Asiento is the monopoly on shipping slaves to the Spanish Empire. So this is kind of granted to the British as part of the peace treaty. And that Asiento is then sold uh, to the South Sea Company. So the South Sea Company begins as a venture to um, ship slaves. Um, however, as we've already mentioned, um, these chartered companies aren't particularly efficient. Part of the problem they've got is that their monopolies are hard to enforce. And the South Sea Company has the added problem is that the Spanish are never particularly cooperative in um, 
facilitating their trade. So they're important in terms of um, the human misery of human slavery because they transport thousands of slaves. But they, as a commercial success, it's never particularly viable, the slaving part. And the company switches its attention towards the the financial aspects of it. But one of the things about the um, Southeast Company is that it's fairly well documented. And um, by the time of 1770, early 1770, it, it raises money um, in the so-called third money subscription. Um, and okay, it, it's principally concerned about financial operations at this time, but it's still shipping slaves. And in 1720, the South Sea Company raises money. Now, at this stage, it's primarily focused on its financing operations, but it's still involved in slaving. And we have the lists of the subscribers to this capital raising. And they are very extensive, the, the people subscribing for it, uh, amongst the uh, so-called great and good of British society. So they comprise most of the House of Commons, about half of the House of Lords. Um, famously, Thomas Guy, whose money then goes on to uh, found the hospital, he actually makes money out of trading South Sea stock. Um, he sells his, he begins selling it when the, the share price hits £300. He sells his last shares at £600. Uh, the share price carries on going up and hits £1,000 before crashing. Uh, somebody else who got out at a good time was the Duchess of Kendal, uh, one of the king's mistresses. But there's also a long list of very famous British people who lost money uh, on on the shares. Um, John Gay, the playwright, Vanbrugh, Newton, um, the Duke of Portland, who had been William III's favourite, was ruined by it. Um, so the um, subscription lists show how widespread um, involvement in slavery was. And we should see, probably come on to this a bit later on, that um, investing in slavery in various ways was, in a way, just an obvious avenue for people with money to get some kind of what we would call portfolio diversification. Um, and they're all pretty much all wealthy people are disposed, shall we say, to investing um, mm. in, in slaving. Um, so we've spoken about the Royal African Company, we've spoken about the South Sea Company, and that both of these go into decline, and that most of the trade is carried on by private um, traders. And um, we're talking typically of partnerships financing these voyages of maybe six merchants and often sort of kinship ties are important in, in, in this. Um, but as mentioned earlier, these voyages would take a, um, a considerable sum to fit out. First of all, you have the ship itself. And one aspect of the ships is that they are of short uh, duration. Um, a sailing ship would last no more than about 10 years. And within that time, it might make six voyages um, to Africa. In addition to financing the ship, you've also got to finance the crew. Um, and um, the 
an English ship would typically have a crew of about 30. The, the size of the, the British ships was limited. Um, they were typically between 100 and 200 tonnes. And one of the limiting factors in their size was that they needed to be able to work the African coast and also the estuaries of the rivers uh, fairly easily. But using Richardson's figures earlier on, the big ones I was talking about, um, and then dividing it by the total number of voyages, you arrive at an average of just over 400 slaves um, per voyage, according to um, his figures. So I was saying that the voyages were typically financed by groups of merchants. Uh, some of the one of the, the most prominent London merchants in the 1720s was um, Humphrey Morris, who was based in um, Mincing Lane. And in 1720, he had eight ships working for him. And these eight ships were named after his uh, wife and daughters. And he's quite a good example of illustrating how... Um, diverse this trade was. Uh, normally when you read about it, it's described as the triangular trade. And that's a good description for a lot of the voyages. So triangular, because what would happen is that the ships would take manufactured goods out from um, England to Africa, trade them for slaves who are then taken across the Atlantic, and then they return back to Britain, creating the third leg of the triangle, carrying sugar, but also the other products of the, the slave economy. But what Morris was doing was that um, he was um, selling, um, he was buying and selling slaves in Africa. So he would take ships to Africa, he would buy slaves, and then he would sell them to Portuguese um, traders um, further along the coast. He did send some ships across the, the, the Atlantic, but he, he's a kind of illustration of how, uh, how many diverse elements there were in, in this trade. Um, two of the other prominent merchants in the 18th century were Richard Oswald and John Boyd, um, who both came from Scotland. And um, they are one, one of the interesting aspects of them is that they form, along with other merchants, they buy Bunce Island. Bunce Island is an old RAC, sorry, Royal Africa Company fort in the mouth of the uh, Sierra Leone River. And it's got a big holding pen for slaves. And they buy that and they run that as a partnership from, from 1747. And um, John Boyd, um, you can still see evidence of him because he built himself a fine house just outside London in what is now Bexley Heath. So Danson House um, is this 18th century Palladian mansion, which was done up 15 or 20 years ago by um, English Heritage and is run by the council and English Heritage. You can visit that today. And it sits within Danson Park, which is a kind of general park, but you can tell by looking at the park that it is actually the landscape gardens for a house. And Boyd was also very well known for his collection of um, master pictures. And when you, when you start looking for the connections with the slave trade, they are absolutely everywhere. Um, so, for example, if you go around the British Museum, they have a little section on Hans Sloan, whose collection was one of the core elements within the British Museum. And a lot of his money came from his wife, and his wife was the heiress of uh, plantations. Um, there's a very good exhibition currently on at the Bank of England Museum. Bank of England has a small museum. At the end of it, they've got a, an exhibition space now dedicated to the connections between directors of the Bank of England and the slave trade. 
Um, and they include Robert Clayton, um, who was uh, a director of the Bank of England from 1702 to 1707. Um, he served on the board of the Royal Africa Company. And um, he was also, like a lot of these, well, uh, a lot of the prominent slave traders um, who we know today via statues and the rest of it, a philanthropist. Um, so he served as a governor on Christ's Hospital. And he was also a benefactor and, and president of St. Thomas's Hospital. And there is a statue of him um, opposite the Houses of Commons, sort of hidden away, um, hidden away because of modern susceptibilities about slave trading and not wanting to see these statues as commemorating uh, uh, any longer as being acts of commemoration. But it's an interesting statue. It's in a rather nice sort of hidden away part of uh, St. Thomas's. You have to sort of go out of your way to sort of find it. And it's a rather uh, interesting statue. I mean, they've got information about the slave trade next to it, um, but that statue is by Grinling Gibbon, so it's quite a, a, an interesting thing in its own right. Um, and um, the uh, as I was saying, you can just find links anywhere. So, for example, Gibbon, famous historian, um, he, the wealth that allowed him to have the leisure to write his, his great work uh, comes from his grandfather, which comes um, from slavery. And what about those engaged in slavery? How did they justify it? Yeah, well, this is... Um uh, as indicated earlier, something that's really fascinating, I think, having alluded to the fact that in England there wasn't slavery between sort of 1100 and the, the sort of, well, 16th century. Um, Hawkins is often cited as the first person, first English person to be involved in the slave trade. He sends out three voyages. He's probably not the first, um, but... It, he, he then becomes celebrated as this kind of great hero of um, English maritime power. More concretely, um, the sovereign, Elizabeth I, invests in his voyages. And the alacrity with which he does that is, it sort of speaks volumes and the fact that the Queen invests in it. Um, we can divide the period up into roughly two. So um, I'm talking about Hawkins, that's sort of slightly before the period that I'm primarily interested in, which mentioned earlier, 1660, roughly to um, the, until the end of slavery. And we can divide the period roughly up into the period up until the 1770s and afterwards. And the, the key divide is the growth of the abolitionist movement. And once abolitionism gets going, there's a kind of groundswell of opinion. Now, that it, it is a contested issue and there is a acrimonious debate uh, between the opponents of slavery and the defenders. But in a way, the defenders really only come out of the woodwork in response to the abolitionist movement. And one of the striking things um, about the earlier period uh, is the silence on, on the subject. Um, I've mentioned um, Hugh Thomas's book, who which I, I, we will list in the bibliography. And one of the things he, he mentions there is the importance of Charles II and James II uh, when he was Duke of York in the establishment of the original chartered companies trading in slaves. And Thomas complains that the modern biographers of these two kings make no mention whatsoever of slaving at all. Um, obviously, they're very important. But in a way... The um, 
the silence on the part of biographers is understandable because there's nothing in the sources. That, that there's nothing saying. I mean, sorry, there is in the sense that we can see them being active in promoting the companies, but there's, there's nothing on record from them saying what they thought about it. And that silence in itself is probably significant because it probably indicates they didn't give any thought uh, whatsoever to it. Um, and um, I've mentioned, I think, William Beckford, uh, perhaps I haven't, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but William Beckford was the largest plantation owner in, the, in Jamaica in the mid-18th century, and he becomes very prominent as a British politician. And so th there's an awful lot about Beckford. He, he, he's very important. Um, he, he's a Lord Mayor of London. He's an MP. Um, he is very vociferous um, in championing English liberties, but again, he's pretty much silent on on slaves and what he thought of them. And there is one moment uh, which w in which we can see him kind of, n well, I was going to say addressing the issue, but actually not addressing the issue. Uh, Granville Sharp, who is one of the early champions of abolitionism, and he's he's a, a great. Uh, campaigner against the slave trade, um, but he's also in, interested in trying to establish in English law that slavery is illegal. And again, there's a lot of debate about this at the time. Um, but one of the things that um, his efforts um, provoke him into doing is to writing this big study of English common law. And he produces this, this book, which argues that slavery is uh, a great moral evil, and it's also... Um, illegal under common law. And he sends this manuscript off to Beckford and Beckford returns it to him with a terse note. And that's all we've got in terms of Beckford, who is enormously wealthy, huge slave owner. That's all we've got. And I think this, this silence in the earlier period, as indicated earlier, reveals the fact that they just didn't feel they needed to justify it. It's, it's only when people start attacking it that they, 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 they come out. Um, and I think that the way this works is obviously um, slaves are seen as property. And this comes out once the abolitionist movement gets going. The big arguments uh, in Parliament in it are over property rights. When it is finally abolished in the 1830s, they compensate the slave owners. Um, and when um, the Duke of Clarence, who is later William IV, he leads in the House of Lords the opposition to abolitionism. It's all about property rights. Um, the, and we can see the, 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 this concept of um, slaves as property in, in so many aspects. So you've got these uh, within the colonial assemblies in places like Jamaica, they, they pass local laws defining what a slave is. Um, we can see it in the way that slaves are entered as much as any other cargo would be in the, the manifests of slaving vessels. And also in the latter period when abolition gets going, there are um, a couple of things that are used by the abolitionist movement which reflect the attitudes of earlier on. So one of them is the best known image, I think, that comes from slaving, which you see in a lot of books about slave trading, which is that diagram of the Liverpool slave ship, the Brooks, mm -hmm. uh, which shows the, the slaves arranged on the decks. And this is published by the abolitionists in 1788, and it creates a sensation. And this is, I think even today, this is a very arresting image because it encapsulates the horrors of the so-called Middle Passage very 
graphically, just showing the distribution of the slaves with no room to move whatsoever, all manacled. And as I said, when it's published in 1788, it, it causes, it, it's a major piece of, of propaganda for the abolitionist court. But it shows how the slave trade was conducted, and it shows these people being stowed packed in just like you would pack in any other cargo. And I suspect that had that been published 50 years earlier, it wouldn't have created um, any kind of sensation, perhaps. Um, also, in this latter period, um, 1781, there's the famous case of the Zong. And uh, the Zong leaves Accra for a voyage across the Atlantic with um, nearly 450 slaves on board. And as they make the crossing, the captain, Luke Collingwood, throws 133 of these slaves overboard. And what he does is he selects the sickly slaves and gets rid of them. And then later on, the owners file an insurance claim uh, for the loss of their goods, in inverted commas. And it goes to trial, and uh, Mansfield, who is the judge, uh, fines against the owners um but the reason that the, the reason the insurance claim fails is that the captain claimed that, that he was running out of water and that he did this because um there wasn't enough water to go around but it, it's established in the course of the trial that actually the ship uh, has water when it arrives um in in the west indies and also the reason that the voyage is take, taking a bit of a long time is because of incompetence on the part of the crew. Um, so what's significant about this? In a way, is it reflects the old thinking about slavery. This is an insurance claim that is dealt, dealt with in terms of its merits as an insurance claim. And Granville Sharp, who I mentioned earlier on, he tries to bring a case of uh, he tries to bring a criminal case against the crew. By this time, the captain is dead, but he tries to bring a criminal case against the crew for murder, and he gets nowhere. Oh. Uh, so, to that extent, the fact that it's seen as just an insurance, basically uh, goods being thrown overboard, reflects the old way of thinking. What's new is that this crea in 1781, this creates, uh, a again, a sensation and is adopted by the abolitionist cause, Sharp is there taking notes. Uh, he employs a shorthand writer to to, to follow the, the, these events. But so both of these are kind of at the, uh, at the cusp. They're in the later period, but I think they illustrate a, an, an older way of thinking about slavery. Um, also, in terms of justifying it, um, I think we have to imagine that both the the crews who are transporting the slaves and also the slave owners are to some extent frightened uh, by the slaves. And this, this may seem a bit extraordinary in that in both, uh, both um, cases, the, um, the, the crews, in particular the captains, and then especially the slave owners, have a monopoly of violence. But at the back of their minds is always the fear of the slaves seizing the ship or of a slave uprising. Um, and I think this explains... Well, it doesn't explain why they're put in... Um, barbaric conditions to begin with but once you put them in barbaric conditions it kind of uh, explains a kind of cycle of uh, violence um the traders tend to write a bit more about slavery than the plantation owners do and when they do um there is this almost ubiquitous idea that the slaves are better off as slaves than they are 
in Africa. And the, the way the thinking goes is that in Africa, um, they are pagans, whereas when they are slaves in plantations, they are owned by Christians. Um, and also um, a, a typical idea is that the Africans are um, brutish in Africa and in a way they are um, they kind of deserve their fate in in the thinking of a lot of the people shipping them um, there's also a religious justification in that uh, if we go back into the middle ages um, European attitudes towards Africans are fairly complicated but within them is the idea that uh, people of uh, African descent are descended from Ham who is one of the cursed sons of Noah, and that therefore the, the Bible, in effect, um, sentences them to um, a unpleasant fate. And then finally, of course, we can see the way black people are portrayed in portrait, portraits and literature in the 18th century, and it is normally done in a rather condescending way. So um, the, the, there were lots of black uh, servants there are almost uh, a kind of fashion accessory um, and they are often depicted in the way that you might depict uh, a pet uh, in in a painting so that they reflect kind of widespread derogatory attitudes towards um, black people but uh, as I was saying earlier the, the it, this all of this is quite extraordinary um, given the background that between sort of roughly 1100 and when the British, and perhaps the time of Hawkins, there there is no slavery. And, and when it ends in around 1100, not only is it ending because of economics, because serf, serfs are cheaper and more productive than, than, than the slaves, um, it ends because there's a big moral crusade done by the church saying that this is this, this is wrong so one of the interesting things about slavery i think is the um way that it is very quickly adopted um by the the english and the british when, when they do take it up just goes to show you how complicated um, a subject it is i think maybe next time we uh, talk about william beckford what do you think yeah, that'd be interesting. He, he's a very um, interesting figure um, as, as the largest plantation owner. And also, ironically, and we can talk about this if we do him as a, as a champion of uh, English liberty. But for the purposes of now, you have this champion of English liberty, huge, huge slave owner. And he just obviously doesn't think about the people who are creating, creating, who have created his enormous wealth. Thank you very much, Ian. Oh, my pleasure, Hazel. That's all for now. Until next time.